Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I'm glad to be yet again talking with Stephen Marsh. We're going to be talking about his new podcast series, which uh, is fantastic. It's How Not to Fuck Up Your Marriage Too Bad. Mm. Uh, it's nice to be actually able to say that out loud. Every other radio thing I've been doing, they they won't let that happen. It's just, it's bad. That seems, that seems I know. Fi- finicky. But, I know. Um, We're in the middle of a global pandemic. I mean, can we? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, welcome back to the podcast, Stephen. Pleasure, always. Uh, yeah, I loved the first podcast, which was, this is, I guess, sort of a sequel to it, which was How Not to Fuck Up Your Kids Too Bad, mm-hmm. right? Um, unfortunately, I got into a lot, of, a lot of kind of annoying conversations with guests because we mentioned that in a previous episode when we were talking about something else. And so a lot of people were excited about listening to it, but then when it actually came out, something about the the contract made it so that it was only available um, for people who were members of Audible.ca. Right. And yeah. So uh, and so also we have a lot of listeners in Australia, New New Zealand. It was also uh, available States, in the UK, the UK and Australia. It did well really? in those places. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I, I had people Prime who tried Minister. to get it there and they couldn't. They couldn't get it there either. That's uh, so weird. It got. It even got advertising in Australia. The the New Zealand Prime Minister was a big fan. Not the Prime Minister. Her husband was a big fan. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was an uh, accidental hit in uh, the UK. In, <laughs> in here, yeah. It's like big in Japan. Only yeah. Like big big in Australia. <laughs> Big in Australia. Big I'll take it. Hell. Yeah. Well, you and uh, you and um, Jordan Peterson, right? So. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm quite at 20 million copies in a year, but uh. yeah, but he's Jordan Peterson's huge in all these English-speaking countries, uh, other than Canada. And in Canada, he's mostly. Uh, he got huge here too. He I mean, did. I went, and, I went and saw him with Zizek, as you know, and it was absolutely packed. It was that was a a very embarrassing performance. I mean, that was just 
I think um, we're at the point with Peterson now, aren't we? Where it's like we're we're moving into the pity mode. I mean, like the man's in a coma in Russia, and his daughter only eats meat. Like, <laughs> you know, like like I don't like. The more and more I think about it, the more I think like what like what something was going on in his life. Like I was judging him, obviously. That's what I was sent there to do. But on the other hand, it's like. You know, something was going on here that it's like when you see a fighter get knocked down and you don't realize like, well, something's been wrong in his personal life for a couple of years. Like it's, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was not a particularly, well, it was embarrassing, right? as you said. Yeah. And it's, it's also, um, I've known, I, I know personally a couple of people who've, um, who've gotten addicted to lorazepam, which is right. the, the drug Horrible. that he was addicted to. And it's, um, it's apparently, I mean, I've, I've never, I've never tried it. Uh, well, I don't have anxiety issues, but, uh, I apparently coming off of that stuff is absolutely hell. Like a, a friend of mine who got kind of addicted to it a few years ago and then had to, to ease off of it. He said, and this is a guy who lived through the sixties and the seventies, he, he's mm. done everything. He said it was um, like the hardest thing to detox of that he's ever, it was like worse than the worst breakup he's ever had. It was just, um, and I said, well, can you explain to me what it was? And he says, you have uh, an incredibly low tolerance to pain. So even the, even the smallest thing, like a sore toe, that you've got a wart on or something like that, or uh, you cut yourself shaving aches so much that it's unbearable. Wow. Uh, little, little things really, really hurt. And you are, you become like, like you're trapped in nightmare on Elm street. Like you're, right. you're afraid of going to sleep because every time you go to sleep, you have the most fucking terrifying dreams you've ever had in your life. My God. Like you wake up dripping in sweat and, shaking and like afraid and uh, it's it just sounds horrible yeah and, yeah uh, i mean it, i think i have i have so little experience you know i have a lot of friends who've gone through like addiction and withdrawal and mental illness and things like this and it's one of those things where i i have no frame of reference you know none whatsoever it's kind of like people going through war right like i just don't know it's just a whole avenue of human experience that's cut off from me yeah, it's, it, it's, 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 it, it's, you know, it, it sounds like a nightmare, you know, yeah. I mean, it definitely sounds like a nightmare. So as I said, like when you're in those kind of conditions, like the fact that you don't really understand what you're talking about when you, t- when you describe the word Marxist, probably it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like it, it's not, it, it's not really, it, it's not really that relevant. Yeah. But I also, because there's that famous interaction with her and Kathy Newman, Right where she just looks utterly unprepared and smug, and is putting words into his mouth, and yeah. just looks. And it, it was kind of a famous interaction. You know, it's one of those. Well, he was blessed that, by his enemies for sure. I yeah, mean, and you know. but but the thing is, is I remember in the lead up to his conversation with Shizek. There were all these, he was posting all these things and it became kind of a, a, a meme. They showed uh, kind of Kathy Newman. Uh, the meme would be, there's some many versions of it, but there'd be like a, a vision, Kathy Newman 
um, preparing for her um, conversation with Jordan Peterson, and it would show like a person in a spa with like cu- cucumber things on her eyes and sitting in a hot tub and you know sipping like a like a really nice drink with a umbrella in it, right? And then it would show like uh, Jordan Peterson preparing for his conversation uh, with Zizek, and it shows like a person you know like just like sweating uh, in a library with piles of books on either side of them. You know, wow. and, it, and it became such a meme that you know, this guy really is preparing and he posted a lot of things up in, in the lead up to the, um, that, that conversation about how he was deeply studying Marx and Marxism and that he was, so it's not as if. I don't know how deeply you can say you've studied things when you haven't read the introduction to the communist manifesto. I mean, you you had, you had like, you had the same reaction I did, I think, which was like, okay, when you're taught Marx in year one philosophy of history, and they explain to you that Marx understood the transformative capacity, capacity of capitalism better than anyone else. That's like the first thing that they teach you. Like, and he didn't really understand that. Like he was just, he was literally confusing anti-colonialism with Marxism. Like it was just this sort of loose impression of critiques uh, of, uh, of Western power structures that he, 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 he he wasn't able to distinguish between, you know, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, like, as I said, he was like, you know, we've all had a moment where you're a prof and you wake up and you don't know, what you're supposed to teach that day and you have to go and like fill like usually with historical stuff. Right. And that's the feeling it had to me. Right. I yeah. mean, you know, I think the guy was one of those guys where, and it, it is the worst tendency of our intellectual moment, just generally where people define themselves by their enemies and then they develop fan bases based on being the enemy of groups that they hate. Right. And without ever questioning what the substance of what's actually going on is. Right. It's it's negative partisanship, but in an intellectual framework. And, you know, what happened, what turns out a lot of the time is that you get to the end of it and there's nothing there. Yeah. Right? And, and like there, there you're you know, he was right. Like he, that those conversations with that with Catherine, what was her name? Catherine. It was. Um, oh, it was no, on BBC, Ka- right? Ka- Newman. Yeah, and it made him famous because, you know, she was so awful and she ref- reflected such a reality of awfulness that is there. But then when you actually start to, like Zizek, who I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah, neither um, am I. Neither like am I. you can at least, he, he is substantial, like he knows what he's talking about. Sure. Like, for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, like he, like he, you're, you're not going to confuse him on the nature of Marx. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's. So yeah, I mean, I think I think it's one of it's one of the least favorite parts, and the reason I'm starting to like le- involve myself less and less in disputes just generally now, like intellectual disputes of the moment, is because like what you're actually talking about is who's my enemy and yeah. why and, and why should I hate someone else's line line of thinking? And it just seems so it just seems so vapid. Like nothing nothing comes of it in the end. There's no insight in the end. Yeah. Well, I, I what it makes me think of is. Uh, there's this um, there's this really great cafe not far from our house, and it's called Cafe Pie, and it's a chess cafe. And they you have, still have one in Montreal, eh? Oh, so that, this is a chain? No, no, no. But there used to be there was a chess cafe here. Where, I'm a big chess player. I love chess. 
So, and I used to come and gamble in chess all the time. And like, so chess was the speed chess is what I play, but like they used to, they used to have one here. It was like the greatest thing. They had a chess corner here and it was the greatest thing. And in, in New York, they used to have like a dozen of them and they're sure. all gone. They're yeah. all gone. Well, they have one here, Cafe Pie. And oh, Montreal I had, uh, I had a bunch of friends who would, who would go there all the time uh, and they'd play play and there was this one guy that um that they met and this guy was uh, he would mostly just watch other people's games and he would wander around kind of sipping his espresso and you know looking around and then he would play sometimes and he was phenomenally good right okay and this is among people who are all yeah. really good yeah okay and he was phenomenally good and so they're they're playing with him, and he he got a reputation around the place. And eventually, somebody realized that he was a a famous chess player. I, I can't remember like what his name was, but he's a, a very famous chess player, like world famous chess player. Yeah. And um, and so they were all just you know talking to him and stuff like that. And at one point, he said to them, um, he he was in town because he had a elderly relative who was very sick and was dying and he wanted to be in town to be with her um, in her her last months you know so that's what he he was here just for a couple of months and he would come to the chess uh, club when she was sleeping and things like that but um, he finally said to them he said look you seem like really nice guys uh, but I I can't I can't play with you anymore and my game bad right yeah, he said because you're you're at such a lower level than me. Yeah, that I can win um, doing like things that uh, playing a stronger player I would get punished for. Right. But because you're weaker players, you don't notice all the mistakes I'm making. Yeah, and so that actually makes me a weaker player, and I feel like. You know, when you talk about being defined by your enemies, exactly. If you're gonna, if you're going to argue with people on Twitter, people who are uh, really kind of idiots, they're really ill-informed. Yeah. Uh, your wins are not really wins. Um, you're they're making you intellectually lazy. Right. You're well. You're what is the process here, right? Like, the, I mean, like the like the process is not one where you're actually trying to, you know convince somebody and you're not like the, the i mean that's why i think actually audio like the, the show like not to move back to my like selling mode or something but like the reason i love working in audio and I'm moving pretty strongly towards audio is that it's 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 a place where the humanistic can still exist right and well like, it's like it's in to use marshall McLuhan's term which i uh, it, it's a cooler medium. Yeah. But it's and, also like, the thing is like, if you write an essay now, like I would have said five years ago that the written essay was like the most exciting form to write in um, because it was more adventurous and there was, you were able to do weird things and you were able to go weird places and there was a lot of openness and the market was expanding. But like what, what you, when you're writing an essay now, what you're trying to avoid is the single sentence that can be cut out and put on Twitter and you turned into whatever. Right. And you turn into a humiliated thing. Whereas, it, it, whereas with an, with audio, especially when you're dealing with human voices, you know, like the essay as a form involves being wrong. 
right? <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing that I love about it. Yeah. You start out, you think things through, you're wrong, and then you come to some kind of insight. Yeah, and people, people forget like, that. You know, Michel yeah. de Montaigne, the whole idea, it's, it's, a, it's a try. It's an, an it's a try. In French, it's still very clear, but in English, uh, we don't, we don't catch that meaning anymore. I know. I wish there were a good English way. Like essay is good, but like, like the try is such a, is such a, like that's such a brilliant meaning, right? Like if, if, if we were out there writing tries, right? Like it's like, <laughs> like he, 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 Stephen had a really interesting try this week. Like that's exactly, that, that would be so great, right? Because that's exactly what it should be. It's yeah. like, and because, and also because that's what captures the actual motion of people's thoughts where it's like you see how people think through things and how the mo movement of the spirit works. And I mean, that's what I love about the genre. And like Twitter does kill it because it essentially takes out one single quote and turns the whole thing into that. Like Lori Moore had an essay like a couple months ago where she talked about how she would have these dreams where she admired Trump. That got taken out and she, it became Lori Moore, Moore is a Trumpist. Now, not only is that incorrect but like you're missing the whole point here which is that people have these very complicated feelings about political figures people have these emotional reactions to political figures she's trying to understand what that looks like but the attempt to understand you know if you can't be wrong at any point um essentially what when you read an op-ed section now what you're reading is a series of legal briefs yeah and 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 that's not I don't, that's not fun for anyone, but also it's not really how people think. It's not how people think through things. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I also initially, when I listened to, a, you know, a couple of audio books, this is years ago, they were so terrible because yeah. the people that would be reading them would just be droning on and on. Uh, but then there was, there's been some, kind of an evolution of audiobooks and the, the first sort of big change was when they started actually hiring actors to do the reading and that just the quality went way up but then something else happened which is the third stage which is just uh, absolutely uh, I find just mind-blowing which is now it is very often it is the author herself or himself who reads their book and this has all these amazing effects because now you're actually hearing, you know, let's say, you know, Stephen Marsh reading Stephen Marsh's book. And so you can tell by the intonations, by the pauses, by the silences, by the, the sort of little bit like veiled laughter during a certain sentence, you can, you get this rich, rich, rich layer of meaning where it almost sounds like you're, you're just like this uh, primitive human sitting around the campfire listening to the best storyteller in the group tell you this story about a family of people who are werewolves yeah. and they do weird things. Like, it's just, it's so, but that works because it's audio. As soon as you put that into a YouTube video and there's a, a video component, um, the, the visual just, just swamps almost everything else. Right. And it's hard to like focus on what's being said. Yeah. I mean, the face dominates, you know, everything. Right. Yeah. But like the voice is, I, I mean, the, the market for voice is so growing, right? People want this stuff. They want, you know, I mean, the amazing thing is when they, 
I did get a really good producer when we were doing the kids thing. And he gave me like two weeks where it was learning how to do this stuff. And, you know, it really was interesting learning the difference in interviewing someone on audio as opposed to interviewing someone for print. Because like for magazines, like when you go to, did I tell you this before? No. No. no? Okay. No. Because uh, like, you know, when I, I would go and interview somebody for Esquire or something like that, the, the, it's pretty, the, the technique is pretty simple where you, you learn everything you can about the person and you really don't say much. Like you just shut up and people fill the silence with this, with, you know, they fill the awkward silences with stuff they really should not be saying. And that sounds incredibly dumb, but it works just amazingly well. Yeah. Like, it, it, like, it, like, and you get these quotes and then you take the quotes and you cut them up and you put them in the stuff. But when you're doing audio, what you're, you're not really looking for insight or magic quotes. You're looking for intimacy. Yeah. And that's a, and that's a really different practice, right? Uh, like looking for intimacy. And it's also explains that I think what audio is for, which is like it, it provides people with an, it's not that it provides people with the same thing that an essay provides, which is like, uh, you know, the solution or, or, or some new way of looking at something. It can provide that, but really what it provides is the sense that people are going through things, right? Yeah. That, that people are thinking things that people went through things and that kind I mean, that kind of intimacy, I just find totally fascinating to pursue. I mean, like yeah. it, it, it's, it, and it has a whole other bag of tricks associated with it that are um, really amazing and also are just like cheap psychological tricks that nonetheless always work even on the most sophisticated people and um, and, and like I, I love it I, th- I think it's amazing yeah I mean I don't think there's in my experience there's not really um, there's not really any trick per se. Like I, I totally know what you're talking about, you know, in terms of interviewing for Esquire, because that was Tom Wolf's whole thing. He said, you know, how do you get people to uh, divulge their most deepest, darkest secrets? Um, you know, ask, <laughs> right? Like, right. just ask, ask, and then just be quiet, and they'll like, they'll yeah. say everything. Um, and that is kind of a, a bit of a, a cheap trick, and there is something. The ethics of that are questionable, but. I think in terms of when you're trying to establish dialogue, like really good dialogue, whether it be in a seminar or a classroom or on a, a podcast when you're you're having a conversation with somebody, I think the the trick, if you can call it a trick, is to just really, really put yourself in a vulnerable yeah. state of mind where you're you're being open and you're being um, and you don't have uh, an agenda like because if you have if you have an, an agenda in the sense like you're trying to make somebody look stupid or you're trying to make them you know whatever you're trying to you're trying to sound smart you're trying to sound funny or whatever if you have any kind of agenda that will just poison the conversation in in ways big and small that are so they're not even really hard you can not really sort of put your finger on like how it's happening but our speech is so just central to our species that we can pick up on all sorts of things like we you know we sort of know when somebody's you know playing us right and not being like not being straightforward about what their intentions are towards us well what i was taught is that the mirroring effect is really pronounced. So if you want someone to tell you a joke, you tell them a joke <laughs> and they'll tell you. And they'll t- and if you want someone to tell you something intimate, you tell them something intimate. And 
it's amazing to me how much that works, right? Yeah. Like, like if you want someone to be, if you tell someone a secret, they will tell you a secret right back. Yeah. Like, and then you, and then you get to cut out your secret. Right. <laughs> but like, I mean, the other thing is that audio is so like, you know, like these audio series are like, we call them podcasts, but obviously there's all these different modes of talking. Right. Yeah. And they each have their advantages and disadvantages. Right. Like we're like, you know, they're, they're like just talking, I think can be really fun. And I think things like Slate Gabfest and stuff like that, or, you know, Joe Rogan, which is basically just talking. Yeah. Um, you know, these are, these are great things, but you know, then there's also this other stuff, which is like really essentially trying to recreate the concision of an essay in the audio form. And that's really new too. And I think it's super exciting. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. But I, I would say before I forget to mention this uh, to all of our listeners, uh, the great thing about Stephen Marsh's new series, um, how not to fuck up your marriage too much, uh, too bad. Um, is that if you are a member of Audible in any at audible.com, CA, uh, you know, UK, any of them, um, you can get it for free. It, it's part of your membership, uh, your monthly membership that you're paying for. All you have to do is click on it. Uh, you'll have it there um, for free. It's, uh, I think, I, I really liked the one on on kids, uh, the first one. I thought that one was excellent, but I think this one is um, way better. Really, this, this one? Yeah, I think the the writing it's tighter. Huh. It's a it's a it's it's just it's more it's more packed full of. Um, there were like a couple episodes of the kids one, which were you know fine. I like I liked all of it, but there were a couple of ones that were like you know, significantly weaker than some other ones. With this one, every single episode is is really, really, really strong. And if you had to say, okay, should I edit? Uh, which one should I remove? It would be really, actually, I would think almost impossible to decide which one to remove. They're oh, all wow. really, really essential. In fact, it's so well well written and put together that, uh, you know, as I said to you in the message the other day, have you thought about just taking the transcript and just turning it into a book? Well, I, I mean, you know, I tend to, um, you know, like these things are bestsellers in this format, which is great. And so that does naturally lead to that kind of idea. But I kind of think like this is the form that it's supposed to be in. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I have other books that I want to write for sure too. And I, I think this is, um, this is what it's supposed to be. Like, you know, I mean, I, I'm not ruling it out completely, but on the other hand, I like it like this. Cause you remember when we were, you remember when we were kids, there was, um, I guess when we were about, you would have been about 10 and I was about 12 or 13. There was, um, Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, he came, he did that series on PBS that with Bill Moyers, The Power of Myth. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and you remember they turned it into a book? Heroes right? of a Thousand Faces, was, right? No, 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 no. The, the Heroes of a Thousand Faces came out years before. Oh, okay. Um, so this was basically just interviews with Bill Moyers um, on a number of different themes, right? And it was the, at that point, it was like a, it was crazy. It was the most successful show PBS had, had ever had. Right. It brought in 
millions and millions of dollars of new subscriptions to PBS. It was a, it was a big success. Well, they turned the series into a book, which became like a, a best-selling coffee table book, right. which I received from my grandmother uh, <laughs> for Christmas when I was like 12 years old. It was The True. Power of Myth. And it, uh, and that's a dead form, eh? The, remember that the the the, uh, the coffee the the intellectual coffee. Yes, table I know. I, oh, it was man. yeah. It's pretty. I much- had a great one called the Soccer Tribe. I forget who wrote it, <laughs> which was like an anthropologist had written this huge anthropological analysis of soccer fans. Wow! And, with images, it was a great coffee table book. There's another one on civilizations. What was it called? Patrick Watson's Democracy. Remember that? I did not have that one. Oh, that. No. Do you remember when he did the television show and then they had the book? And oh, I remember was, the television show. I don't remember the book. Oh yeah. Big, well, that was it. It was the same idea. It was like yeah. we'll, we'll 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 take the television show. We'll make it. I mean, I guess the thing is, there's no television show intellectual. Uh, uh, ent- te- television show intellectuals anymore, right? Except for uh, what's his name. Um, but I, like who does jazz and baseball and so oh, Ken more. Burns and yeah, Burns, but Ken Burns. that's not really quite the same thing. No, his, his stuff though has been getting better and better. It's, yeah, it's yeah, amazing. He's, I mean, he's yeah. just, he's, he's getting, the best at it. he's so, he's so good, but yeah, you, this is one of those things where I think you could turn it into a book with practically, um, very light editing. Like you could just, it could almost just be like the transcript, which is exactly what they did with um, Bill Moyers, Joseph Campbell, the power of myth, the book. Right. And it did, uh, it had the effect of, well, first of all, it just made, made a lot of money, but mm. then also it led even more people to um, go back and watch the series. So right. I actually read the book first after I got it for Christmas. Um, and then I went and watched all the PPS series um, and I got to sort of see this wise old man uh, right. talking. They're redoing Cosmos, right? That's the, they, they've redone that one with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I never watched, I, I, watched, I didn't watch the original of that either. I watched the original, but recently, like I watched it, I think about, I watched it with Annalisa, I think it was, and the boys, it was two years ago. Mm. It's really really good i can't believe how how much it has stood the test of time carl sagan is just yeah he's fantastic he was a great charismatic charismatic presence for a man who's not particularly good looking he has a very huge amount of charisma yeah he is and then uh neil degrasse tyson um we watched his he redid it and um, I didn't like it as much as Carl Sagan because I feel like Carl Sagan is, he's a popularizer. Right. But he never, ever dumbs anything down. Right. And, and so you feel at times when he's talking that you're just getting out of your depth and you're, you're grabbing for your rubber ducky and your, your flotation device. Like, and you're trying to sort of keep up with what he's saying. Whereas Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, I... I had the opposite such feeling where there were a number of times where he happened to be veering into territory that, that I'm comfortable on. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he was not doing it justice. Right. And then right. he was, uh, he was just being um, excessively charming. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, like he, yeah. he was just 
like loving on his baritone voice and his uh, yeah well the, you, know, you know think how much television's changed since then right like there's a whole i mean it's just such a radical different market you're trying to compete in you know what i yeah. mean like Carl, when carl sagan was on there would have been what four channels one of which would have been pbs you know so different different worlds yeah no it is very much the um so what was your goal initially sort of putting this together like what was it well i mean you know i thought um essentially what the the, the idea behind the show is to take kind of practical approaches to uh intimate issues and see if you could actually come up with a meaningful answer um which is you know, a surprisingly rare approach <laughs> to these questions. And of course, like, it's in a space, much, much like the childhood book, where there's a lot of easy answers. Like, there's no end of people telling you this is what you need. You know, like, when we did the kids' podcast, I remember, like, when we had babies, there were a bunch of books that said, if you breastfeed your kid, um, there you're going to damage you're going to essentially ruin the world because your wife won't be able to work and women won't be able to work it'll be the end of the world and if you don't breastfeed your kid you're going to raise a psychopath there was a whole <laughs> other set of books saying you're going to raise a psychopath and every answer was black and white and none of it seemed like it was all based on science but it wasn't really based on like double blind testing so like let's actually look at this stuff and see what we can get out of it. Talk to people, talk to ordinary people, see how they deal with the intimate aspects of their lives. And you know, try and try and figure out what's going on. And you can actually get surprisingly far um into these things and get get some real answers. Sometimes there are actually answers. Yeah. You know, like uh and, and which is a bit surprising since you're dealing with really mysterious questions of personal intimacy well i think one thing that just has to be said from the offset about your your podcast series um is that although it begins with how to and so a lot of people are going to i mean when i first proposed listening to it uh, to my wife she said oh that's going to be self-help like i can't stand self-help right. shit. and uh, and actually um it's not self-help uh it's it's actually in in the sense, and what I mean it's not self-help, is that most self-help stuff tends to come from a, uh, you might say, kind of a metaphysical standpoint that we are uh, completely in control of our lives. The sort of the, the most ugly version of this, Barbara Ehrenreich describes in Bright-Sided, you know, the the tyranny of positive thinking, oh, um, yeah. and uh, and, and you very can see with yeah, and in with um, what's her name, you know the uh, where she says that oh the tsunami killed all those people because they were thinking tsunami yeah. thoughts and right. the secret and all that other bullshit. Uh, your your book is much more. Um, I, I said you know in the message to you that it, it reminds me in certain ways of Machiavelli's The Prince. Which I want. There's so many things sort I love. Of a compliment. Uh, it's sort of like the married prince, if it became a book, I guess. Uh, but the there's one of the most charming. See, closer to consolation of philosophy myself, but anyway. uh, I see. I see that, especially towards the end, I and mean, that last episode with your mom and with oh, well, because was it, just also it's crazy. Like, you know, the point here is that you you like you got to be lucky. 
Like you but that's that's what be, I'm saying. That's what I'm got saying. Got to be lucky. Like don't right. pretend that you that your life is good because you're really smart and you yeah exactly. Or that your life is bad because you were bad. Like but you would never see that in a typical self help book. They would say if you follow these instructions, you are going to be happy, successful, hot, yeah. you know, whatever. No, I mean, and, like, but what you, know, you do, which is what Machiavelli does in The Prince, is. The most charming passage, or one of the most in The Prince, is where Machiavelli says, uh, yeah, okay, so I'm basically telling you um, all this advice on how you can be successful, but you should know that Fortuna is yeah. in control of at least half of our at lives. So he says, if you're really lucky, you can do everything wrong and still succeed. And if you're really unlucky, you can do everything right and fail. So basically, I'm telling you, uh, the things that you're in control of, and right. I'll tell you what you should do and not do. Um, but uh, by the way, you can follow all my instructions and still fail. It's all odds, right? It's about yeah. getting better. It's about getting better odds. It's about making the right call. And you know there are decisions, but also you know you're in an. The thing is, you're in an asymmetrical information environment here, where you don't people you don't even know what a successful life looks like because everyone's marriage is a total black box. Right. I mean, yeah. like, like, no, you, you, like you, we've all had things where it's like, they're getting divorced. You I thought they were so happy to be kidding me. How could they be getting divorced? Like, and we don't, and, and instead, and of course you could say that's like, it's a small point, but like the social media environment we're in where everyone's happy, happy, smiley, smiley all the time makes it look like everyone's super successful, but you know, I mean, the one thing I really did learn doing the marriage thing was doing the marriage podcast, the marriage series was that marriage is really tough. It is not like with the kids one, the answer we basically came to was love your children and express your love and hope to get lucky. I mean, that, that was really, but it, it was like basically do what is natural to you. Just express your feelings. And with marriage, it's not that simple at all. Because marriage is not natural. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. It's not that it's not wrong or that, that it's wrong that we shouldn't be doing it. I think it is actually worth fighting for. But it's, it, it's very complicated. And it's, it, I, don't, I, don't, I think even in the, most, in the most successful marriage, it's kind of even more complicated than it, than it is for the unhappy marriages, which are often just simple. Right. They just don't like each other. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like I think I I think one one thing to be clear is like you don't actually have a lot of good information when it comes to these extremely important uh, relationships. Now, I I learned a lot that I didn't know before. And there was a lot of things. Sometimes there are actually answers, which kind of is when it's surprising to me. but like, like, for example, like you should schedule sex. Like we could literally not find a single expert who would say the opposite. Like there's no one who's informed about this who would, who would say the opposite. So like, you know, if you're married, you should know you're going to have to do that. If you want to have, <laughs> if you want to have a sexual life, right? Like that's, that's not fortune, right? That's not, yeah. that's like, you, you need to do that. Yeah, that was a, a really, this just for our listeners, uh, there's an entire, I'm actually just going to read out the episodes because they're just uh, fantastic titles even. Uh, so the first one is, uh, Should We Even Get Married?, uh, which sort of goes over um, why, for various reasons, um, it there's a big difference between just uh, shacking up with somebody and living with them and actually going through the ritual and getting the piece of paper and getting married. Uh, 
then the second uh, second episode is how do you pick, which is fantastic. Huge problem. Yeah, fantastic. And Fast you talk about problem. online dating and all these you know, various kind of problems and strengths of how do you can you come up with algorithms <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that can figure out like whether you should stay in a relationship or whether you should uh, look for a new one and uh, then the third one which uh, we just alluded to should we schedule sex which is just absolutely hilarious uh, it just to give a tidbit it <laughs> it begins with this uh, couple in Colorado I believe who yeah. they they oh, had uh, had like a a sexless marriage for three three years every time they had kids if I remember correctly anyway yeah. and so they decided to go 101 days straight having sex every single day and they would even do it if one of them was uh, puking with vertigo and hospitalized and you know horribly ill they you know would still you know bad idea take one for the team uh, yeah. uh then uh, how do we stop fighting which is uh, an incredibly you know, the first three episodes are are sort of uh, they're you know they're serious, but they're they're lighthearted and they're kind of they have a real comic uh, side to them. And then that fourth episode, um, how do we stop fighting? It, it shit gets serious and it gets very very intense. There's that one uh, interview with your boss Chris and his wife, which yeah. uh, amazing I, amazing sequence. I, yeah, I can't he, he, believe that they let you put that in there. Yeah, very powerful. But, you know, I mean, how many, like, the thing is, like, once it's in there, it's like, you know, we know he's not exceptional, right? Like, he, he's, like we know when he made himself vulnerable, it was not, it's not exposing him as some kind of aberration, but probably the norm, right? And, and I think that's very liberating. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I, the, the, Annalisa said, oh, that's just like you. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, but I think it's it's fairly if you have people who are um, very verbal, right? They use words a lot, and they very verbal and and you know smart people who are very verbal are gonna be you know probably the most vicious people when they argue because they're, well, Chris they're, is like, they're good at it. Chris is like the most mild mannered. Like if you met him on the street. Um, the first word that would come to your, gentle would be the first word that would come to your mind, right? Like he's not a, uh, he's not at all a, uh, uh, an angry person. He's not a person with that you would think has violence in him. It, the opposite, like totally non-confrontational in all daily activities. And, you know, the, in the first season we did the, we, when we did how to stop screaming at your kids, it was him. Right. Like yeah. He was the, cause I don't actually, I, I create a toxic haze of disapproval as my <laughs> children put it, but like I, I did something different. He actually shouts. It. So, you know, it was, he, he was the one who had to work through that. And then this one, it was also that. And I think that's, you know, um, again, like the face we present to the world is not maybe the one that is, is that we see. And, um, and I think sometimes because of that, no one has ever said to Chris ever, you need to deal with your anger ever. Right. Like no one, no one in his workplace, no one in his, like no one, none of his friends, you know what I mean? No one he's ever gone to school with or anything like that. And so when it's like, comes down to like, okay, well, you know what? My wife wants me to deal with my anger. My kids want me to deal with my anger. You know, that's, that's who you really are, of course, too. 
Yeah. And it's these intimate questions that I think are flummoxing for a lot of people because they are so secret, right? Yeah. Are, and it's, I think especially for Canadians, right? And especially for Canadian men who are wound up tight as Dick's hat band. Like, uh, you, you know, like I, I think it, I think that was kind of an opportunity for him to look at that. I, mean, yeah. I think he, I think he, I, I mean, a lot of courage on his part. A lot of courage. It's not, it's funny. Cause like, I know that the stereotype is, is rooted in a, in a very real reality. Um, but it really is not true here in Montreal and Quebec. Oh yeah, yeah. People are much, much more uh, oh, of course. loud and it's and very expressive and um yeah, yeah there's not there's none the of that the yeah. one on affairs i wanted to do one where we went and compared having an affair in montreal to having an affair in toronto because <laughs> i know they're different i know they're different i know they're i know their meaning is different like yeah. like the, the significance of having an affair in both these places is totally separate yeah i i, I like i've seen that from friends in both places and but we didn't we ended up not having the money we ran out of time so i couldn't do it but like yeah very very culturally different yeah well the, it, it it's funny what you say about uh, your boss chris because that's um i've heard from from a lot of my female friends in fact from from my wife from uh my sisters from like that uh very often the most the most kind of abusive like violent guys in a relationship are these like super kind of like kind of a feminine, like feminist guys, like right. a male feminist who are like well, yeah, going yeah. and it, and it's precisely because they're so not in touch with their anger yeah, and they're not in touch with, whereas like, I remember um, the guy, um, the guy that Annalisa dated before we met in Baltimore um, he was one of these guys and you meet him and he had very soft voice and yeah. very like, you know, very woke and stuff like that. And he was like in an actual relationship where she said he was like the worst misogynist right. and it was like really, really. Um, and yeah, no, I, I've never had, I think cause I had a lot of trouble with uh, anger when I was younger, like when right. I was a kid and a teenager and I had, uh, I got into fights a lot and I was like, I got into, so I, I was very much aware of my capacity for violence and for anger and was, and right. And then you have to face very it, hard you know? to had to work very hard to like, to calm that down. Yeah. Um, so it's, I, I don't uh, have any trouble recognizing when I'm feeling those things, right. you know, but uh but yeah, I, I have seen, you know, and I think also you don't talk about this in your, I mean, there wasn't really any reason to, but it's something that I've thought about a lot is we talk about uh, different emotional styles in heterosexual relationships. Mm -hmm. And very often there's this, they talk about um, being passive aggressive, right? right? And, uh, and, and this is always, well, not always, but very often, uh, you'll see this dynamic in a, in a straight couple where the woman is sort of saying that uh, her, her husband is being passive aggressive. And I think, you know, not always, but very often what they don't realize is that um, because this guy, especially if he's like a bigger guy, you know, like, like a six foot two guy who's like, been, you know, weighs 225 pounds, like uh, he had to learn like from a pretty young age, 
how to yeah. restrain his violent tendencies because if he didn't, he would end up fucking in jail. Yeah. You know, like, like, and so meanwhile you have, you know, his wife who's like this five foot two, 115 pound, like, like little thing who just flies off the handle and like throws plates into walls and, and is very fiery and Italian and says, why can't you be like me? And she like doesn't, you're really talking about somebody specific here. <laughs> like, uh, I do have one couple in, in mind like, specifically. Yeah. And, and she says, why can't you be like me? And she doesn't realize that the consequences of him being like her are very serious. Yeah, sure. Like a six yeah. foot two guy who's like, like really muscly and like, do you really want him to, to lose it the way you lose it? Yeah. I, I mean, I think one thing I learned doing the fighting thing is that, um, you know, that aggression is kind of, it's not even really innate. Like, it, 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 like there are of course these innate things, but like it's actually being shoved up against each other all the time. That, well, of course, we're in COVID, so we're all facing this, like, in an extremely dramatic way. But, like, you know, the way that you respond to mild threats from people, like, even things that no one, like, threat would seem like a threatening word, but actually it's just, like, it, it just means, like, something that you regard as abnormal in your partner. Um, it, it just It just triggers this whole mechanism that's essentially primitive, and it, it, it's in men and women, and it basically makes it impossible to be reasonable. And mm-hmm. so, like, and, and and I mean, so that's why the fighting episode. That, I mean, that was the one that I learned the most from, because it was like what you have to do is you have to get to safety as quickly as possible. Now that does sound like self help. I mean, it really does sound like one of those seventies catchphrases. Yeah. But on the other hand, I found it very useful for myself because it like like it it just gets back to like you know. You're when you if you understand fighting as a physiological process rather than an intellectual process, because it's not an intellectual process. It has nothing to do with thinking things through or coming to some kind of agreement or rational discussion of objectives or anything like that. It's it's a physiological response. It's in the blood. It's like it, and your 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 heat gets up. Like if you understand, like you just need to get out of that as quickly as possible. Rather than try and like, I think even even people who've been married for many years think I'm in a I'm in this argument we've been having for 15 years. I'm finally going to make the point that's going to convince her, and it's all going to be okay, <laughs> and then everything will be fine in our relationship because she'll understand what I'm saying. And then you know, and then they're kind of surprised and saddened when that doesn't happen. But that's that's not the way these things work. Like the way things work is you, you're having a biological reaction to being in close quarters to each other. You're having a biological, I mean, that's the horrible thing is this, this fighting mechanism is a biological reaction to intimacy, which is what you want, right? Which is the whole point of being married. And, uh, and when you, and so like, you just have to pay, it's not a question of, you're not going to win anything. What you have to do is just get out of it as quickly as possible. And so like the, you know, the, again, there was actually a pretty strong consensus among these people, like fight often, like don't not fight, but get out, but fight quickly and get over with with it as quickly as possible. Yeah. There's, there's one thing I, I actually was thinking about in that episode, which is something that, um, you probably, I don't know, you, you might not be as aware of it, but because you grew up in a household with two parents who 
um, yeah, they they fought, but they loved each other and they stayed together until your yes. father's untimely. For Be- sure. And because uh, because uh, Sarah also grew up in a household with parents, you know, stayed together and fought that. And um, Annalisa, my wife, she grew up. Um, her parents had been married, you know, going on like 50 years. Right. And they've been together since they were teenagers. And so they would have, you know, horrible fights, but they always made up afterwards. Um, whereas I, I grew up uh, without going into too much detail, but I grew up in a situation where, uh, you know, my father was very, very violent. I mean, he broke right. my mother's nose a couple of times. He was very, very violent towards, towards me, towards my mother, towards... And ultimately, my my mother had to get away from him. Um, so, I I've noticed this pattern among my friends, uh, married friends, who the ones who grew up with intact households with parents that are still together, uh, versus um, people who came from situations more like mine, uh, where I think people like you and Sarah and Annalisa just are you fight in a much more healthy way because you, you sort of, there's this safety that I know we can get through this and get to the other end and it's going to be okay. Whereas all this really fucking primitive stuff kicks in for me when the temperature goes, you know, above a certain amount where I suddenly think, okay, we need to, we need to, you know, stop this now before this goes nuclear and before this gets really bad and we blow up, you know, our relationship or we, or we do or say things we're going to really regret. And so uh, I will very often um, just like shut down right. and like stop, uh, which just like prolongs things for much longer than they, you know, like a fight that could have been like a half an hour ends up being like, like a day, you know, um, yeah. and it's be, and it's because I just have this fear that, um, it's not going to be safe. If we go out on that ice, it's too thin. We're going to fall through. Whereas she grew up where the parents are still together after almost half a century. She's like, no, we're going to be fine. We love each other. Uh, We're mad about this and we need to get through it to the other side. And uh, describe it as like the fear of abandonment or, or like when you reach that point where like you don't, where you feel like the, like what is the threat it's sort of, if I had to think of an example, it's, um, you know, it's a very Canadian example. Um, if, let's say, you know, when you're driving, uh, driving on a, a, when there's a real snowstorm happening, mm-hmm. but it's a familiar route, uh, you've, you've done this route many, many times, uh, and it's, it's snowing, uh, and the snow is getting pretty heavy, but you can still see, and so you just make sure you kind of decrease your speed and, uh, and, but you know, you can still talk in the car. You can like listen to music. You're like, I know we're going to get there at a certain point. Um, if it becomes whiteout conditions, you're actually going to say, you know what, I'm going to pull off and wait until this gets better. Cause I can't, I can't see anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then very often what you'll see with new drivers or with p- people who have just moved to Canada uh, recently and they haven't driven in snow before when it is snowing, you know, not that bad. Yeah. Like most Canadians would just can just make sure to pay attention and don't go too fast. Uh, but they would definitely not like pull off the road. 
Like it's nowhere near, um, you'll see these, like I, I've seen it a couple of times with last time I was with an Egyptian taxi driver and he like, he pulled over right. on the side of the road and it was not even snowing that hard because right. it was, it was very terrifying yeah. to him. Cairo to Montreal. Is yeah. He didn't. Uh, he, different uh, driving conditions. Yeah. It was, well, he's from Alexandria, but yeah, yeah. same, same difference. And, but he, he said, uh, he was afraid that he was going to crash. Right. And so when, what happens to me, and I'm getting better at this after, you know, 20 years of marriage. Yeah. Um, but, uh, is that I, a snowstorm that people like you, uh, because you saw your parents when you're sitting at the top of those stairs, listening to them argue, uh, you know, they're going to get to the other side. This is not whiteout conditions. Yes. No, whereas, whereas early on, if, uh, if an, argument gets heated to a certain point i this like sort of little kid in me that uh, gets scared that this is gonna this is gonna end in disaster we're gonna crash yeah like, this is gonna this is something bad we need to just like pull off the road but, but actually no, pulling, pulling off the road, off the road, just road means... is what the advice is right i mean pulling off the road is that's like i you know it's funny because like we were trying. We tried so hard in this series to be a bit more diverse than we were last time. Like not for ideological reasons or anything like that, but because this cultural stuff is so integral to these intimate lives, and we kind of missed the boat in the first series. And in the second, so in the second series, we made a pretty conscious effort to be pretty like make sure we had a bunch of different perspectives. But it's always these things. Like you're right. Like I think one of the things that's um, is that Chris and Mio and I, despite our very different marriages and despite very different backgrounds, like we ultimately came from families that stayed together, right? And that's um, and that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, to how you process all this stuff. Although I will say, you know, from my other friends who who are um, children of divorce, they um, they don't tend to pull off. They tend to crash the car. Really. In, in my experience, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, they tend to be like, oh, well, I guess the marriage is over. Oh, yeah, well, that, that, would, be, uh, that would be an extreme. But I, I, for me, it's more like um, just a feeling like, okay, we need to just completely shut down. And it's like me stonewalling or like walking right, out or something like that. Uh, yeah. Because I feel like if we keep going, this is going to be a disaster. And the thing is, is the, the problem with that is that then you kick in the other person's like sense of abandonment. And, uh, and then, so, you know, to go back to my, you know, driving in, in a snowstorm example, yeah. you, it ends, it ends up taking you, uh, you know, a day to, to do a drive that should have been a half an hour. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know what to like, it's, it's um, because I mean, I, I actually think like, one thing I've realized is that the fighting is not like when you get into a fight about a subject, when you get to the end of the fight, it's always like, well, that wasn't really what we were fighting about. We were fighting because you're tired and I was drunk or like, or X, Y, Z, like X, like some physiological reason. And then the debates that happen afterwards, like that's where the solution actually comes, right. Where you're like, blood is down and it's like, okay, let's look at this and see what it happens. But you feel like you, because your fights are incomplete, you don't get to the end of them that you, that you somehow you don't discuss the meat of the issue either afterwards. Oh, we eventually do. 
It right. just it takes much much longer than it it needed to, and it it could have it could have been uh, it could have been like not such a big deal, mm. but because of this sort of uh, hyper vigilance of mine, that it uh, it ends up. And the thing is, is I, I thought this was just like some quirk of my own, but I've since talked to uh, a number of people who had um, had sort of like a lot of like really ex- violence, like a lot of violence early on and they witness a lot of violence and they, uh, that they also, they tend to sort of be much more um, uh, kind of wary of letting things, letting things boil yeah. over and well, realizing much more like, vulnerable for sure. And care, just worried about, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like the, the old trope about how like, uh, you know, and I, I saw this when when I first moved from uh, from Montreal down to Baltimore. I remember going out in Baltimore and just being amazed how you can go to these like these hip hop shows and these like bars and clubs and stuff like that, and people are uh, people I had never seen such polite people in my life. Right. Like you'd bump into somebody, you know, and it was totally my fault. Like I bumped into them because I was, you know, stumbling around the bar drunk and like into this like big like wall of a tough like black guy and stuff like that. And he you know, could like squash me. And he turns around and he's like, "Oh, excuse me, you're right. You having a good right. time." So, and I saw this again and again. And then I realized that it's because it, almost every second person is armed, and right. so you yeah. don't you don't start a fight with somebody over stupid things the way you, you do in like Ontario bars. Like right. where people are like, you want to go? You know, uh, like that just does not happen in Baltimore because the consequences of, <laughs> right. of, are, of frivolously the the consequences of yeah. frivolous frivolously starting a bar fight are that you could end up dead, and so you don't start a fight unless you mean to, unless you have like a real. And so when it comes to small interactions at a gas station or at a, you de-escalate, you de-escalate, you don't. Right. Uh, you and that's people I know who've grown up in um, in violent home situations. They tend to have the same attitude towards uh, of avoidance and de-escalation when it comes to. And the thing is, it's like uh, the problem with that. I mean, that can be good um, in certain instances when when people are just losing their tempers. But sometimes, in fact, very often, it means that you you shut things down that need to be talked about. Right. Like you shut down difficult uh, conversations because you automatically think, Oh, this is getting into dangerous territory. I need to deescalate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a completely emotional reaction. It's, a, it's not, you know, there's no kind of rational intellectual component. It's, it's this knee jerk emotional need to need to, you know, shut down or run away. I need, this has to stop because it's right. getting, it's getting ugly, you know? Mm-hmm. I, well, I mean, it's so every, like, you know, when you're dealing with these, in, I mean, one of the reasons that we, we like to talk to the experts, but we also like to talk to the individual people, of course, is that everyone is, it, it's all quite odd, right? Like no, nothing is set. Like there are, there are so many, the patterns all break down very quickly. Like everyone's, everyone's intimate life gets, gets very complicated and, and personal very, very suddenly. Yeah. And it, all, it, it all seems quite random at some point. 
right? Like that's why the luck question that we were talking about. Yeah. Like that. I mean, that's why these system, these like imposed self-help systems or these guides to marriage, like, you know, there are some, there are definitely some that are better than others, but you know, you need to be lucky anyway. Yeah. Like you need need to, you need to be, to have to, especially with picking the right person. Like that's basically luck, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny when you said, uh, because same thing with, uh, with you, Sarah, with Annalise and I, it was a one night stand that uh, led to, you know, a long, well, almost 20 year relationships. So, I mean, like I, I met her on October 15th, 1999 um she came home with me and we've been you know more or less together since um but but it was um yeah same thing like these one night stands that actually that's luck i mean that's just like just luck yeah because very often you know when i stand you realize the next day oh my god i can't believe (laughs) like this this is a terrible idea (laughs) Why did it work out? Yeah, it worked out. But it's yeah. it's funny that uh, of my my relatives, when when I asked when I asked them their advice before Annalise and I were getting married, by one of my relatives who's he's now been married. He's been with the same woman for it's I think going on. It's definitely it's going on 50 something years that they've mm-hmm. been they've been together since they were I think like you and Sarah like 19 right and um and they have like a very good marriage and they've had a very good marriage and he it's so funny he was the one and he said uh, no I don't have any advice he says it's mostly luck right. uh, he said he said we I happened to meet somebody that we clicked really well together and we've we've changed in the same, like in complementary ways. Like, so we could have like, we could have evolved in different directions and, and went apart. We just, we got lucky. And he said, so I, I really don't have, and it was almost like a perfect graph. Like the people, my relatives who were most filled with advice on what to do and not do, are the ones that have been married like, you know, three, four times right. <laughs> and are like, and the ones that like the, basically the, the more actual success that people have had with the institution, they were the ones that were most humble. Right. And the, which totally correlates with, if you look at all the uh, relationship advice books, um, in yeah. the self-help well, parenting. They, Don't you they've find been married the same seven, way. Oh, it's, it's like, exactly the same. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like, um, you know, the people who, people who want to give you advice are like 25 year olds who like, I can't believe he did that with his kids. Like, you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, it's know. completely, two of the most, two of the most like messed up guys that I know, their mom is a famous child psychologist. Right. <laughs> And, and you know, like, uh, so yes, no, it's, it's very, that's, that's very, very true. There's, I don't know what's going on with it, but, uh, Maybe it's like you know the cobbler's children have no shoes, yeah, or something like that. But right, I, the the next episode in your podcast, which I, I'm sure is uh, maybe the most scandalous one, is uh, can I can I fuck other people? Right. I, yeah. Well, could you sort of talk about that one a little bit? Well, I mean, that was really a kind of look at um, different different approaches to this, like the simple cheating approach. 
uh, people like swingers, like which is sort of an older thing, and then the new polyamory movement, which is very trendy, and which I I, I was really interested in because. Like I can sort of understand having random sex with strangers and still having a strong marriage, but I really can't understand like falling in love with other people and allow like allowing that to happen. And um, you know, basically, what is sexual loyalty and what does it amount to? And you know, it was it was really interesting because it just is so um, so culturally determined. Like I knew, like I'm not an idiot. Like I knew, of course, that there's different meanings to these things. But what I really didn't know is that there's such a spectrum. Like there are people who think that if you're watching porn, you're cheating on your wife. Like, and a not insignificant number of people. Like, yeah. like to me, that's just totally insane. Um, and then of course, like you know, and then of course, the fascination of talking to people who have, uh, you know, multiple relationships at the same time. Which is, um, you know, the, the, the short answer to that one is you can, but you actually have to get more married. Like it's, mu- <laughs> like it's much, it's much, it's really complicated and it's really expensive in terms of time and concentration and talk. Like it's, um, it, it's, yeah, it's, people come to all kinds of arrangements with themselves. Um, you know, we, we, we had a really interesting talk with Dan Savage for that one, who, you know, because he comes from, uh, you know, because he's gay and because he comes from that, you know, that world, he, you know, he has a very different attitude towards that. And I think he would like us, I, I, you know, I always think about Savage that he wants us to be uh, sensible the way that, you know, gay people are sensible about these things that his yeah. idea of well, specifically gay men are sensible. Yeah, about them. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, not to generalize too much, but like I, I, you know, the monogamous idea is much more, common much more widespread among gay marriage and it really seems to work like it's not it's not like it provokes these crises in, in these marriages um so he would like us to be as sensible as that but of course i don't really think straight people can be that sensible i, yeah. I really don't yeah like, i don't think so i don't think so i've had like a you know a number of friends over the years who've who've dabbled in that and uh, and who've tried various versions of that and almost Almost without ex- this is straight couples, and almost without exception, it has been a disaster. Right, and it's been a disaster for all of the reasons that you mentioned in that episode. That um, that essentially, uh, if you if you just are doing the sort of like sport fucking, like kind of some version of swinging or anything like that, yeah. It, unless you are, uh, I don't know, unless you are basically like like an a non-violent sociopath. Uh, it seems to me like the people who can do that uh, and and kind of somehow survive it emotionally over mm-hmm. the long term, they most of them are in sort of what I've seen. They tend to be people who are um, extremely extroverted. Yeah. Usually work in in sales or in some sort of like they're real estate agents or they're in sales. They're like people who are kind of smiling and performing and they love just being around people all the time. Right. And they're, they're kind of like always on and like selling and yeah. stuff like that. And so they're kind of, they, I don't know, they, those people um, seem to, uh, they seem to be able to, to hack it. Uh, what has happened to pretty much everybody else that I've seen who's tried that is that, um, 
sooner or later somebody falls in love with somebody and then everything gets really, really messy. Well, and the polyamory people, they do fall in love and they, they have no problem with that and they work things out. I mean, it's just, but you know, well, that's it exhausting. It, it, it's that's exhausting. exhausting. It requires I mean, just one so marriage is so, so much. Yeah. It, it, it requires so much talking. It's, it's not worth it. It, it, I, well, I just, well, I, I, can't. I don't know. I mean, I, like the, one of the things with the show is of course, we're totally non-judgmental. We're approaching this humanistically, like, you know, whatever floats your boat. Like it's not, it, we're not, we're not, we're trying to get to answers here. We're not, you know, like, but you know, it certainly couldn't work for me. You know, yeah. like uh, it, it's, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was very, it was very interesting because it it's so meaning based. Right. Like it's not based on anything real; it's based on the the context in which you're doing it. Um, that and that that's that's why I kind of wanted to go to Montreal and Toronto because I think they're very different places in that regard uh, in, in their in their cultural approach to these things. Yeah. Well, it, for me, it was that um, you know, in having kids, I remember saying to my wife early on in our relationship that I really wanted to have kids a lot, but I said I didn't want to have. Um, a lot of kids and I wanted to uh, because I was afraid that um, that I didn't have enough love to give that I that I didn't that I was kind of like kind of sort of like a selfish asshole in certain in a lot of ways Mm. and that kind of uh, liked a lot of time to myself and a lot of and I just I was afraid that if if I was spread too thin that I would um shortchange one of them you know so i figured like two kids i can totally do that i can do that like i can do that like right no problem but i said three kids i feel like it might start spreading me too thin or something you know so because i've seen in big families very often there's like one kid that just slips through the cracks and they don't get nearly as much attention and love as the other kids and it's sad you know (laughs) um but to me, when I think about polyamory, it just seems like that reality on steroids. Like you just have so like I I, I find that I I often don't have enough um, attention and love like, to, to maintain like one marriage, <laughs> right? <laughs> to, to be able to like you know to ha- have to maintain a few relationships at the same time, that just seems like it would be totally totally exhausting yeah i mean it did seem like quite fraught i mean the swingers like we talked to the guys who on the swing swinging club in toronto which was a quite impressive place it was like four floors of various rooms with everything you can imagine and things that you probably can't imagine like you know i remember walking through it and it had it had like yellow tape on the floor, like, like yellow. And I was like, what's the yellow tape for? And they were like, well, that's the splash zone. Like if you, if you like cross, oh my over, God. If you cross, cross going over to Marine land, line, if you cross over that yellow line, you're in the scene. Right. Ugh. And if you, and if you don't like, if you don't want to be splattered, like stay on the other side. And, um, and I was like, well, this is not the kind of sex that I'm into. Right. Yeah. Like I think everyone kind of thinks like, you know, what if we could be married, but then we could also be like we were in our twenties, all having casual sex and it all being really fun and meeting interesting people. And it's like, no, that's just gone. <laughs> like there's no way there's no way to get that back. Right. There's absolutely no way to get me. I mean, maybe you get it back when you go into an old folks' home or something like that. But you know, you can't consciously get it back. Like 
that you're married and you're going to have to talk through this stuff one way or the other. Yeah. Um, and like, and so like, I think it was really good to see. I mean, they seem very happy and they were really nice people. I feel terrible for them because I assume their business is going to be destroyed by COVID. But like, you know, they had this, you know, they had like unicorn day. Like they, they had, they were full. They were, they were absolutely packed. Um, and they, they certainly had a, a very strong business of people, people having sex with strangers um, yeah, just to, just for our listeners who don't know what you're referring to, Unicorn Day is this day at the Swingers Club where it's uh, single women who like to have sex with couples. Yeah, that and this was, is like that the, was by far the yeah, most popular. This was their option. like hockey night in Canada, uh, you know, sort of competing against hockey. <laughs> that was their a, they big had a night. Poster on the wall that was Bukaki Night in Canada, oh and they had a God. night for that too. That's they had they, they had everything they had they had everything they had like um you know they had like gangbang tuesdays and stuff they had they had a students only night that you had to be registered as a student at the university and apparently that was quite full uh you know no creepy 45 year old guys like me hanging around yeah like, or me yeah yeah like it, like it was uh like it, it, i i think it's um but it, it you know quite popular like there's, there's no question that that, that is an active uh, subculture yeah. with, with a lot of participants. Um, it, you know, it, it, it seems you, you always think like, Oh, it looks so, uh, so it's not hot at all. I mean, the place was <laughs> clean. I'd never been in a place so clean. I mean, I, I, I would eat off the floor. Yeah. Like, like without, without exaggeration, like I would eat off the floor. Like it could, could not have been cleaner. Um, but like it, it's, uh, but you know, it's just not. That's not what I go to sex for, right? Yeah. So, uh, so you know, it was kind of a bit shattering in that way too. It's like not e- not even the fantasy. It turns out to be that fun. Yeah, I think that is that is an, a standalone episode that could actually just like all by itself. I mean, it should be listened to. They had, they built the place themselves. Like they built the business by hand because no bank would lend them money. And their, um, their sons had built it with them. Like they had like three 20 <laughs> year old sons who'd like come in and built their sex club for their parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And they were also saying that like when the, when the three sons were, they didn't have sex for a year with each like new kid. Yeah. It was three like dry spells of a year, like jury, and now they're these sort of swinging. Well, when they left, yeah, you know, when they got out of their dry spell, it wasn't like why don't we go to a hotel in 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 Caledon? It was like it, <laughs> it was, was like, like some like, Noah's Ark shit. Man. It was, like, yeah, I mean, it got pretty real <laughs> pretty pretty quickly. They but, you know, they were they were so cheerful. Like the polyamory people. I mean, there's something more um, kind of like adventurous about them there's something they they really they really are in a new spiritual world and i'm not sure it makes sense and i'm not sure it's going to work out but they're experimenting right like they're 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 at the edge of experimentation for these guys it was really like there's an they 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 had just come back from a holiday in france where there's a town with 12 of these clubs and they're all connected on the on a nude beach and you basically walk from club to club like fucking strangers and all of them like you know like it, it's a full world right like it's a fully it's a it's a fully active subculture that um that they that they they do not see themselves as you as strange in at all 
there, there's there's literally tens of thousands of people in Toronto like them. Yeah, well, I think the, the polyamorous, I I think that they're actually doing something. Uh, they don't seem to realize this with the ones that I've spoken to, with a couple of exceptions. Um, but they're actually do, trying something that's been tried many times in human history. Right. The, Christian, the Christian perfectionists in the 19th century in the Oneida community practiced not just um, swinging, but actual polyamory sure yeah um, the communes were there were communes like yeah there were the lots of too. communes in the yeah. 19 in the 1920s 30s yeah, and the 70s and so 60s and 70s who, yeah. who practiced polyamory and they came to it um through different rationales i know there was a, a christian perfectionist view that said that people who are who are saved and people who are redeemed and, and rendered who are living uh in the kingdom of heaven that they uh, they're beyond sin, and so whatever they do is okay, right? right. Um, and then there were others that came from a more kind of communist standpoint that they were against the whole idea of of private property and possessiveness, and right. that, and so they said like we should all be able to love each other without um, possessiveness and all these things. So that they, you know, for various kind of rationales, there've been plenty of communities that have tried this in human history and we have great uh, letters and diaries and and documents that that sort of show how it went down and guess what it, it did not work <laughs> in in all those situations and it always what's amazing is that it it fell apart in exactly the same ways in all these places, which mm. means that you're dealing with something that has to do with the human heart. It's not just like a, a socially determined. Um, Although, you know, Savage made a really good point to me, which was, he was like, I, you know, cause I brought that up with him and he was like, yeah, well, is, can you say the alternatives working? Can you say monogamy's working? Like, and I think he actually has a really good point here. It's like, actually, you know, right. Like monogamy, the notion of sexual monogamy, like that, I mean, for, for Savage, it's like if you have kids and somebody goes off and gets a blowjob and the marriage ends because of that, it's totally absurd. It's yes, totally, I it, agree. It, 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 it's ridiculously selfish to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, like throughout history, like you're right, these communes, these sexual utopias have failed. But on the other hand, marriages have been pretty brutal, right? Yeah. And, and full of cheating. And like, like, and full of secret cheating, right? Yeah. Which is the norm that I, I consider that the historical norm. Like, that there's you're married, but then you have pieces on the like, then you sleep with other people, occasionally or regularly, right? And so, you know, there it's one of those things where which we often found during the show is like there is no good answer, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, they, like you're right, the sexual utopianists failed, but. I mean, I don't think you can really take standard marriage as this big win yeah. with its 50% divorce rate. And it's, you know, kind of nonsensical prurience around this stuff that where, you know, marriages, families are broken up over, you know, like I said to Savage, like, I was like, you know, don't, don't you think it really is kind of ridiculous that people would cheat? And he's like, look, this urge is really powerful. You know, like it's really, really powerful. And um, and it always has been. And people have, like the Catholic Church had two thousand years to crush it, and they failed, right? Like, you know, it, it, 
and, and they failed the whole time. Right. Yeah. So it, it, like, it's, you know, it's, I, I again, I, I don't really judge anyone because yeah, even the craziest of the, of the, you, the fantasy, which I consider pure fantasy because, you know, we're, we're all happening. We're all doing this in context. And the context is one where there really is no good answer. Like you cannot have love if you cheat. I mean, you can't have stable love if you cheat. And also you want to cheat. Like this is the, this is the contradiction of being a human being. And those contradictions don't, don't go away. Right. Um, We're all wrestling with the fact that we're in a situation that is, you, you know, is, is, is contradictory. Yeah, no, I, I I get that. I like you. I'm I'm a a big fan of Dan Savage, and I I really I'm very. He's one of those people that he's I he's great. Yeah, I'm so glad that he's in the world. Yeah, and I think that like he has even though I disagree one of those, with him a lot. Yeah, he's, he, he's like one of those sort of thousand people that I think um, just when you add up the sum total of his life at the end of his life, he's just brought so much good. Yeah. And and Absolutely. decency and kindness to the world, and I, he's. Uh, I mean, I would be happy to to have you know the guy's a mensch. I yeah. I, I, I love him, and he, but I gotta and he, say and he, and he that in in his in his conversation with you, um, I found myself. You know, I, I definitely was like shaking my head in agreement with him. Um, you know, often, mm-hmm. but I also found he was being, and this is sort of. I guess the part of Dan Savage that gets on my nerves sometimes is he's, he's a bit of a sophist, you know, he knows he basically, he wins arguments or attempts to win arguments by just like moving goalposts and changing the definitions of words using like atypical definitions of words and then doing these, you know, really kind of standard um, sleazy debate club tactics where like you say to Kokwe, like, Oh, well then how is that doing for, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's sort of, and it, the thing is that he's so charming and he's been doing this for so long that it's like talking to like a really good Jehovah's witness. Like, you know, <laughs> they've got an answer for everything that's, that's like practiced. But I you know, felt I mean, like, well, I think like the part of it is like, and I've learned a lot of this about like some of the most informative shows for me, like in the, in the parenting podcast and in the, and in the marriage podcast was talking to these alternative families that come out of LGBTQ culture because they've really had to, um, because, because they've come at it from a point of view of being non-standard being, being oppressed and having to, they have to reinvent themselves right they have to reinvent the institutions from the ground up and think through how these institutions work i mean one of the most fascinating interviews to me was this um lesbian woman in california who uh worked so hard for gay marriage fought for gay marriage got married that was fascinating and then immediately got a divorce and then because the law in america was so because it was it was legal and then it was con it went back on being legal and then it went, and then it was legal in some states and then it was you know it was just chaos right like typical american systemic chaos uh they she it was a nightmare it was an absolute legal nightmare to try and get a divorce and that really like you know that perspective which you know straight people just don't have right of like ha- having to rethink divorce what is divorce why does it exist what like, and I think with Dan, with Savage, like 
when he comes at these things, he's coming from the point of view of let's re let's let's rethink this. So you know what you say, like he takes different terms. Like I think he's actually in a world where you have to reinvent the terms, right? Like it, like literally, there's no choice. It's been forced on you by society, and I think that can be incredibly illuminating. But I also think you know he just he he wants. He, he doesn't the, the 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 asymmetry of male female uh, power dynamics kind of you know he, he kind of thinks they're just nonsense and we should ignore them but they're they're just so real you know yeah just so, well it's something so that it, like it's easy for like it's a, easy for a, him a gay play. man to say yeah but if he had actually been in relationships uh, serious long term relationships with women he would understand that. Um, you know, obviously there's outliers of every kind yeah. on a, in every, but in general, um, most, most men are a certain way and most women are a certain way. And so like, for instance, a lot of, I find a lot of the ideology, at least the, the part of it that makes sense and that is sort of coherent is the, a lot of the ideology of polyamory and various kinds of, uh, and, it, it comes out of gay male culture. Right. And the thing is, is I, I know I have, you know, plenty of, of gay male uh, couples that I'm very, very good friends with who've been together for, you know, as long as Annalise and I have been together or longer in some cases yes. where they have, it's just completely fine uh, to have like something on the side here and there. If, you know, if something yeah. falls in your lap, you shouldn't go hunting, but if you find it, it's, that's, if it falls in your lap, you're, you know, you find $20 on the street, you can pick it up. Uh, so, and that's like, but the thing is, is like, that's two dudes, right? Yes, that's two dudes exactly. who have like a different, uh, guys in general just have a different attitude towards, you, you try and do that with, like in a relationship between two lesbians and I've, I've known some that have tried it and it was an absolute disaster because yeah. their, their sexuality, female sexuality, regardless of whether they're straight or gay, it tends to work in a different way, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I like, I, I don't want to generalize along those lines, but I think there's, there's some, there's definitely something to, you know, to, the utopian, like to the utopianism of these new families, of these alternative families, which is very real and hugely triumphant. I think, like I think they really have redefined the family in an incredibly healthy way for all of us. I think when you're, I, I think that's one of the things that actually hasn't been talked about about the the entire struggle of LGBTQ marriage rights is that it made straight relationships healthier. Right? Well, you, like talk, made, you talk about this quite a bit in the unmade bed, actually. I, I, I mean, I really believe it. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think it was, I, I think it made us all reconsider like, well, what are we doing here? Like, why, why are these things this way? Um, you know, I just think with, with Savage, there's just a little attempt to be like, well, why can't you be as reasonable? And it's like, well, there are reasons why we can't be as reasonable. Like there are, like there are, there are reasons for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we talk so much and, you know, and it's a good thing that we've done this. We, we talk so much about heteronormativity, but when it comes to the yeah. discussion about polyamory, I think uh, there's a, an unspoken homonormativity that we're not paying attention to, which is that a lot of this is sort of exporting um, something that works very well, very yes, commonly. Which, and I would love it if you could do that sensible, but I don't but think we're, we're just gonna be not going to be as cool as gay guys, and we have to realize that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like we're just not going to be as sensible about this. There's just it's just because of the asymmetry, right? 
yeah. of, of being men and being women. Right? And, and Camille Paglia has been saying this for since the 90s. She's been saying, oh, you know, we all need to be as sensible about uh, dating and sex and love as gay men are. And yeah. she's got this real, and I mean, you know, if only for a lesbian, be- yeah, she's for a you know, lesbian. She really kind of can't stand women, um, but she, but she's always so. She really does not like women. And I came across the, this unbelievable op-ed about Madonna from the nineties. Oh my god, I've read it. It was unbelievable. She's Madonna. I remember the last line. Madonna is the future of feminism. It, it was just. It is but one it of the so, dumbest fucking articles. Yeah, ever. it was. It was apparently quite, Madonna found it embarrassing. I mean, and it really she never. Like, she it never responded like, to it. Was, she it just never made responded my skin to it. Crawl. I mean, it yeah. was like it was really something. Oh, it you want to really? You want to really feel your skin crawl? Read her. Um, read her piece. Okay, I would say it's a toss-up between these two. Read her piece on Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. Oh boy, uh, it'll make Ugh. you throw up. It's a good dieting strategy if you want right. to not. Eat. And her other one, which I think maybe is even more horrible. Yeah. On OJ and um, and his uh, his you know dead wife, where she basically says that uh, you know she actually was the powerful person. Oof. She had all the power in the relationship, <laughs> and that what he did was almost kind of like a self defense, even if he did it. I it, mean, it was kind so of one of those things where it's like gross. you know it, I, I read it. I just ha- I just stumbled on it. Something else I was working on. And it was like in the context of the of this of this New York Times editorial op-ed, like power struggle, internecine power struggle. And I was like, you know, in the '90s, you used to publish some shit that was really, really extreme, like crazy, like 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 you know, any editor who who read that column must know this is going to offend every single person who considers themselves a feminist, right? Even mildly like any any like anyone it was just but you know they did it anyway i mean it was it was really like the 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 framework of approach has really changed well she just she just had that formula that you see with milo yiannopoulos with um, you know a number of them where it's just you know the very articulate and very like able to just sort of just have like a nice clean thesis that's provocative and and interesting, you know, utterly bullshit to anybody who knows what, what you're talking about, but, but kind of, she just had it down. You know, you know who she reminds me of? Who? Jordan Peterson. I, um, mean, I think Jordan Peterson's, but it's a, in the same sense that is, she was defined is, by her enemies. Like she was in a sense, the, the, the cultural warrior and the anti-cultural warrior before the, the anti, well, she was, she was anti-PC. Um, the first time, right? Yeah. And, and no, like, I see. I agree with you in that respect. It's just I think there's there's different kinds. There's sort of James Joyce, Foucault types that a lot of the people who are attracted to them don't really understand what they're saying, but they're convinced that behind all that opacity right. is like deep brilliance. Right. And then there's people who are just like sort of the intellectual equivalent of like a power bar. You know, they're, they're just like yeah. really easy to understand, really clear, very clean lines. They can be reduced to sound bites very easily. And so well, journalists, journalists make love your them. bed, imitate the lobster. Oh, wait, I'm addicted to anxiety medication. <laughs> I mean, surely that's the details, same details, don't <laughs> right. details, I mean, details. Yeah, I like, no, I, I, I 
see what you're saying in terms of the defined. But, but, but you know, the other thing that's, they, he, she, both of them remind me of too. And it's funny that these figures are so prominent because they all kind of do the same thing, which is that they are anti-PC, but in a way that feeds into PC people, like feeds into, feeds into people from the left is Huelbeck, right? Michelle Huelbeck. Right. Who's Michelle Welbeck? The not the French novelist who wrote um, uh, Atomic Particles, and he wrote uh, Oh yeah, yeah, yes, Mission, yes, yes, which is a great book. Yeah, and it, like it's the same thing where it's like if you look at this, for, but, but there's even there's some the genuine substance which, there with that guy. In, in the cultural context, it kind of feels right, but if you remove it from the cultural context and look at it on its own merits. It's it, there's nothing there, right? Yeah. Like, like, like it, it's you know it's the same kind of kind of thing, right? Where it's the judo of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? <laughs> I've actually I've talked to a couple of people who took classes with Camille Pelia, yeah, and they say like as as a prof, apparently she is just a phenomenal prof. I bet. Oh, they said no she's, she's super, super, super. She has like, she talks a mile a minute. Yeah. She's got this incredibly excited mind where she just kind of jumps from one thing to the next. She's, I bet uh, Peterson would be a good therapist. Right? Um, he apparently, he apparently is actually right. a very sure good therapist. Be. And uh, she said she's a wonderful prof. You give her your essay. She has all the essays back on time, and they are <laughs> That's just, what they remember. It's they, not your brilliance. No, it's like the papers. No, came but back they remember time. that they're just bleeding with comments. Really, oh, just good. tons. Of, she reads everyone so carefully, and it's these really thoughtful, useful comments, like uh, yeah. helping you with you know. Okay, right. you should punch up this argument here. This is good. Oh, you should go and look at this. Uh, just read, you know, these fifteen pages from this book. I think it's in the three hundreds, uh, maybe three seventeen to three thirty-two. And then you go in the book, and it's actually three seventeen to three thirty-two. Right. Like she has like a kind of a phenomenal memory. Right. Right. And I think, um, you know, and I said, well, you know, what do you think about her? her public persona and they're just like, Oh, it's just media whore garbage. It's, right, sure. it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, but they said, she's not like that in the classroom. She's, uh, she's just a very uh, excited, excitable humanities prof. Right. Right. Who's one of the best type. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you know, absolutely wonderful. Right. But uh, I, I see we're we're getting sort of to the end of time and there's so many more things that I wanted to talk to you about. So I think I'm going to skip okay. uh, to the last. Um, okay. Well, the, there's another episode where you sort of recapitulate a lot of the discussion um, that you go over in the, the unmade bed about how to divvy up housework and how domestic chores and things like that. I mean, yeah. I, uh, I was, that was sick of doing that. I did not. Want I, to do that I could tell, I could tell you were just sort of, uh, because you know all these other it, yeah. all these other ones, I really feel like I I'm, my my ignorance is genuine. Like, should you schedule sex? I really don't know, but I feel like I've gone over housework so many times. I've been interviewed about it so many times. I've thought through it. I've read everything about it. Like, I I I, I was totally fascinated by it, but it, I mean, I am just exhausted by it. On the other hand, you know, as my producer said, it was like this. This is what people want to talk about. 
when people want to talk about their marriages, they don't want to talk about, about sex or like they want to talk about who does the dishes. Yeah. I, the it's only, incredible to me, the only, the only the objection, the only objection I had, I can't remember her name. She was, uh, she's from UB, uh, BC. I can't yeah, think the it was UBC. The contract? Yeah. Yes. I, I, I found, I was just, that gave me the, the heebie jeebies. Cause I, you know, friends Duvall in his, um, in his book on, uh, the the empathetic society or the age of empathy. Um, he talks, and this is something, you know, Jonathan Haidt has talked about this and the righteous mind. It's a, a lot of people have talked about how do you get to fairness in relationships and not just marriages, but in yeah. business partnerships, workplaces. And one thing that really uh, gets on my nerves about you know, this, what she was saying and, and what you very often hear if you talk to, um, sort of sociologists or uh, social scientists who work on this is that they they usually fail to acknowledge the fact that we have a cognitive bias which is very very well documented and it's it has nothing to do with patriarchy or with heterosexual relationships or marriage it's it's that people in cooperative situations whether it be business partnerships um, tend to think that they're doing more than they're doing. Oh yeah. Right. And there's uh, and this is, if you, if you look at, uh, this is a very robust finding. So if you have, uh, let's say, uh, two business partners who are run a business together. And if you ask them anonymously, how much of the work do you think you're doing? Their two numbers never add up to a hundred. Right. And they never add up to lower than a hundred. Right. It yeah. always adds up to something like, you know, 120, right? right? Like, so if you're doing, if you're actually doing uh, 30%, you, you think you're doing 40, right? right. If, you, if you're actually doing 40, you think you're doing 50. If you're doing 60, you think you're doing 80, you know? So, right. um, and this is found among any cooperative groups, whether it's like two women or two men. And, and actually the more people involved, it, it adds up to a higher and higher number. So like law firms that have, that let's say have like four people, it'll add up to like 200. Yeah. Right? So uh, everybody thinks they're doing more than they're actually doing. Right. And, uh, but, but when you bring this up to people who talk about like how uh, childcare and domestic work is split up, um, they're usually so committed to like, some version of men are assholes yeah. that, that they, they fail to like write this into their analysis. Well, I mean, to me, the thing that I find very frustrating about having this conversation is that <laughs> trying to explain to people that hygiene is a social construct and that they're like, they're that your attitude towards domestic labor is in fact a complex emotional reaction, which is, not debatable, right? Like that's not a, like what, what was considered normal uh, domestic labor 50 years ago is completely separate from what it is. Like what you say, like your mom dusting the, the, yeah. Like this is, so explaining that to people, they take it as an insult, right? They take it as I'm denigrating women's work, um, which I'm not. I'm just saying that there is this disinvestment over time that is, Completely consistent. You're, you're denigrating their their machismo, as you put it in uh, the unmade Well, that's bed. it. Yeah, and, and, but even explaining that that 
the treating domestic like domestic work as alienated labor is a mistake in the first place. Yeah. You can't, you can't get that right. Like you can't, you can't even get to that point. Like it's to even get into a framework where you can have a discussion where on what is the meaningful terms of this stuff is basically impossible, which is why I don't really like to have it anymore Yeah, because, because you end up just saying like, no, it's not, there's all this stuff. And it's like, well, okay. Um, you know, we're operating from different frames, right? Uh, like, like it, it, not, not frames of belief in equality or anything like that, although they take it as that, but beliefs in what the nature of domestic work is and whether it makes sense to think about it in the terms of an exchange economy, which I'm utterly convinced it does not. Yeah. Right? Um, like, you know, my my mother was with us when we were traveling, when we got caught up in COVID and she's been here and helping us take care of the kids and stuff. And, you know, she doesn't get paid for that. Right. Like, but so what does she get? So she doesn't get, you could say that we're oppressing her in some way. Like we're not paying her for her labor. But on the other hand, what she gets is that the children love her. Right. And which you, which you can't put a number on. Right. Yeah. Like that she has, so it's meaningless to, to, to make these, uh, you know, the, the, like the whole idea of emotional labor, which Arlie Hochschild has roundly rejected the use of the term she invented in the current context. Um, that, that, you know, you, I get called up all the time. Can you come talk about uh, emotional labor? And I explain like, you're actually not talking about emotional labor at all. Um, emotional labor is something that happens outside of the house. That's how it was invented. That's, and then yeah. they just stopped. Talking. She was applying it to like flight attendants and yes, customer and service representatives and nurses, bartenders, so, yeah. nurses, and, and it's a very important category. This is not a this is an important idea in the in the in the first of all in gender politics generally because it does fall in ordinary women who do this kind of labor in the workforce do not get paid for it. Like and also like it is external. Like it is, it is, it is something like, but that's all gone, right? Like that, that whole distinction is gone. Um, so yeah, like I, I just don't find that I'm having any meaningful debates on it, which is kind of why I didn't want to do it. I mean, we did it. We talked to some interesting people, but you know, it is the one where I'm bored. Well, um, it's the one where you, you talk the least and you let other people do the talking the most. Right. And I, I found that interesting because um, I already know what you think about it. So yeah. I wasn't, and and so it was interesting to hear other people um, talking about it, and it was uh, it was funny to hear, you know, Sarah kvetching about your yeah. your typewriter that you still have in your room from college yes. and stuff like that. I mean, but but yeah, I could definitely tell that was the. Uh, but if you didn't have an episode on that, it really would not be complete in the way that it is. Yeah, we couldn't have like. The, when people when we would call up people I'd be like hey do you want to come talk to us about your sex life they'd be like no but I'll talk to you about the dishes like <laughs> that's what people want to talk about yeah right? the like, one the episode that I think I'm um, I, I'm going to assign the 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 whole the whole thing to my love and friendship class in the fall um, but the one that I'm going to probably have a, an exam question on is at least one exam question is the one, the episode on money, because right. that is just, it, that Isn't was it fascinating? so fascinating. I had and no the idea. idea that like, this is the number one most 
likely way that your relationship is going to founder. Yeah. Like way more than anything else. And like all those discussions of, of financial infidelity and just fascinating. 7% of people have secret wills. And, I mean, That's... I want you to think about what that means. Yeah. Like secret will. So you're living with this woman. You're married. You're not divorced. You're, you're like, you're in a marriage but you have a completely separate financial arrangement that your partner knows nothing about for after you're dead. I mean, just wild. What the hell? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, definitely shocking. And like the, the, the amount of like, you know, the one thing we were sure, you know, like Seinfeld had that no hugs, no learning rule. Like we had, the answer could not be communication. Right. Like that was that was never to be the solution to the problem in in these wedding episodes. Right. In these marriage episodes, because that's the not that's like the like, yeah, talk, talk a bit more like that's not that's not really an answer. But in this one, it really was like you, you let me get this straight. Like people just do not talk about money with their spouses. They just don't. Yeah. And you, you talked about like, the inheritance of coming from like a divorced family like the, the the use of money in your family that just translates right into your life. I mean, and, 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 you know, spouses just have completely different frameworks for thinking about money. Um, it's the essence of class, you know, it's the essence of, um, the concept of the future. And it, 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 it it's amazing to me. I, like, yeah, I, I really could have done a whole season on that, really. Yeah. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll do that. That episode was just um, fantastic. I mean, like, really, really, really everybody who's thinking about getting married should should listen to or at least, you know, somehow encounter those ideas and those questions before Right. I mean, it's just such important, important stuff. I, I was actually surprised when you said in the episode that uh, you and Sarah have separate accounts. That's uh, you know, what's crazy is I assumed that everyone worked that way. I I literally assumed all of my friends worked that way. Really? I I, I didn't I, like. It's just amazing how you don't think about these things. Like this is the lesson of doing this thing. It's like you you assume everyone's marriage operates in a way, and it does not. I mean. I I assumed every single person had separate bank accounts. Really? You know, yeah, but like I have, you know, I have a freelance writer. It, it's a very different. It's a different world with money, right? It's a very odd way to have money. Being a being a, a writer. Yeah, right? Annalise and I have had we had a joint account. Um, probably, I don't know. I would guess maybe after we were together for. For about nine months, I think wow. like we were we were living together, and we had, but we were twenty five when we met, and um, we weren't nineteen. So, but we had a joint account. We've had a joint account um, for twenty years. Everything's always been in both of our names, and I don't think I don't know. It never it never occurred to us to do anything. Right. Other than that, and the money just goes into it's direct deposited into the same account, and then we figure out okay, this this goes to mortgage and bills, and we, uh, you know, that's right. Well, I think that's the standard way. I mean, that's what I've come to see. That's that's the normal way. Yeah, and the people, generally speaking, the people I know who 
have, I mean, I, I, I'm sure this isn't the case with you and Sarah, but like uh, most of the people I know who have separate accounts, it's because one or both of them has something to hide. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like they has a gambling problem. Or, or, or like, uh, or yeah, or a gambling problem or a drug problem or they, or they just like buy a lot of stupid shit online and they right. don't want, they don't want their spouse to see like, I, that was a weird thing in that episode. The guy yeah. who, who was spending all that money on those antique signs from the yes. 20s and 30s. Addiction like comes spending in like, forms. Yeah. And the guy, like he's like $6,000 in one month. When they're antique signs. on antique signs, yeah. like although some, you know, I mean, I've known some record collectors who were pretty close to that. Yes, yeah, you know, no, that's, like, I mean, maybe not six thousand dollars, but certainly way more than they could afford, right? Or that makes yeah. sense. You know? Well, this is uh, we haven't even come close to plumbing the death, uh, the depths of this series. I mean, that whole last episode about you know, does marriage survive death and like. Your yeah, really your mom's that your that was so powerful. Like yeah. I actually last night um, in a dream, I heard like your mother's voice where she said, "I miss his body." You know that we, just that, that one, gives we, me shivers. Uh, like it, like my all the hair on my arms is sticking up right now just by repeating it. Like he, the way he, like, she says it. Yeah, he, I mean, we had a that episode. It was a famous one because no one could edit it without crying. Yeah, like you know, like the, the sound producer guy who has to cut it up, the guy who has to sa- do the sound engineering on it. Like they, they would all have to stop in the middle of it, which is kind of like it's kind of like that Monty Python joke about the the joke that killed, <laughs> yeah, that killed people. Like, <laughs> but that's that's the win, right? Like yeah. the win is like you cannot listen to this without crying. So yeah, we were very. I listened to it twice, and both times it reduced me to. Yeah, I was crying like a little bitch. I was like, <laughs> I was, I was walking yesterday when I listened to it. I was walking on the mountain, Mount Royal, and uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to be strong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And like, and I started listening to it, and I started crying so hard. I had to like, just I was walking, and I had to stop and sit down on like a. You know, we didn't even talk about butterflies. I'm getting really. You're seeing some amazing butterflies. I'm yeah, it's. It was just. It was so beautiful. I. It's. It's a very, very powerful, powerful. Uh, and that woman who keeps paying her, her dead husband's cell phone so that she can, she can text, text him. She texts him. I mean, that was just so three beautiful. years later. Yeah. It's just amazing. But uh, anyway, you've produced something really beautiful. I think this is some of your best work. I encourage everybody to go and listen to uh, to all of this and be sure to go and, um, and rate and review it um, on Amazon when you're done. And uh, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't wait to see what uh, you're doing next. What is, what is, uh, what's the next thing for you? What are you working on right now? Well, I'm working on a book about the uh, possibility of a second civil war in the United States. That oh, how fun about, and cheery. Yeah. Well, yeah. also it keeps happening. Like I keep predicting things and then they keep happening before I can publish them. But I'm, you know, that'll, <laughs> that'll, that'll be after the next election that it'll come out. So keep an eye out for that. Oh, so it's, it's, it's done. It's well, it's I mean, it's going to need a major rewrite depending on who wins the election, basically. Okay. Uh, but um, although the people I talk to are pretty, pretty convinced it's going to be Biden. But it, uh, but um, for reasons that have um, 
nothing to do with anything in Biden. But um, yeah, it, th- so that's what I'm working on now. And I'm how's the it. how's the celebrity culture book coming? Good. I'm doing. I mean, I'm doing a lot of work on that because I'm kind of hidden away. But I find it very hard to work because I have no access to libraries, right? Yeah. And um, and you know, I can't go anywhere, right? So it's like I was planning on spending this summer, you know, really traveling a lot of places to look at celebrity, India, you know, um, Greece, a bunch of other places, and I can't, you know. It's really thrown like the like I, I'm just at home writing basically. Yeah. Well, I love your stuff and uh, keep keep writing and uh, I, I look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, always a pleasure, John. All right, take care. Okay, Bye. you too. Bye. Bye.